1: Welcome to Power Hour, I'm your host, Alex Epstein. As I said on the last show, if you're around for that, if not, make sure to check out our interview with Dr. William Happer. Uh, But we're doing a series of interviews on global warming, climate change, fossil fuels, because it's an important topic in general, but also because I have an upcoming debate with nation's leading environmentalist, Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org. The man who earlier this year said that we need to make the fossil fuel industry public enemy number one, and the man I challenged to a public debate. So again, November 5th, Duke University, and make sure to go to the website at FossilFuelDebate.com. Now today on the show, we have once again, he was there for, I believe, Power Hour number five, perhaps the most famous critic, I would say the most famous critic of the so-called consensus on global warming, Dr. Richard Lindzen of MIT. Uh, I think Dr. Lindzen's, Lindzen's analysis will speak for itself. Uh, but just on a personal note, he's definitely one of the public figures I admire most. Whenever I read one of his papers, I get almost emotional just by the by the level of clarity and and diligence and utter lack of any kind of appeal to authority. And I remember when he was on the show. Last time, despite all of his credentials, the number one thing he encouraged was for people to do their own research, look into things themselves, and and William Happer did that last week as well, and and I really consider that a very good indication for for the quality of scientist and the quality of person someone is. So on this show, I'm going to ask Richard Lindzen everything I can think of, every question I have, and I think you'll enjoy it. So stick around. And here, my interview with Richard Lindsay.
0: Hour Hour. Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein.
1: Um, okay, so just, um, you've been on the show once before, so it's basically a little less than an hour. Um, and most of the questions I have for you are on the, um, on the paper about uh, designed to answer questions. Did you have any uh, questions before that?
0: Yeah, I mean... Uh... That's certainly one aspect, but I was hoping you'd cover some other stuff as well.
1: Okay. Um, What did did you have in mind? Uh, You know,
0: what bothers me about this issue is the intrinsic obtuseness of the questions. So, for instance, uh, in these public consensus statements and so on, it's always, is there agreement, uh, you know, that CO2 plays a role or that... Climate changes and so on. Um, these are things which, in fact, everyone agrees on. And those are not the questions in dispute. And yet, it's presented as though if there is agreement that climate has changed, uh, we should do something about it. Uh, the real questions are you know, change is normal. It always occurs. Is there anything unusual? Uh, Is the impact of CO2 large enough to be significant? Are things like global warming related in any clear way to the claims of disaster? And those are always left as kind of uh, nits to be picked, but you know, once you establish climate changes, Uh, We have to do something, and the doing something is really much more akin to ancient rituals. When natural phenomena occur, uh, you do some abstract gesture to uh, please the gods or in some ways call them off. And, you know, the fact that the subject is presented in such a dishonest way should immediately cause suspicion
1: yeah that uh, yeah I and mean, i'd love I'd love to cover that i was and i'm happy to to switch but i was I was thinking of covering it under as connected to some of your points about how science has become much more institutionalized and as you described, it reminded me of a government created monopoly, and part of that is that sure. its its method of public communication switches from there are a bunch of scientists who agree on some basic things, who disagree on a lot. There's a lot of different possibilities. It switches from that to we have a political goal, so we need something actionable, and that leads to a deliberate oversimplification whereby the thing everyone agrees to is used as a pretext for acting on the thing that, that people don't oh, Yeah, yeah, with.
0: no, I agree with you on that, Alex. Uh, but, you know, this began 30, 40 years ago on this subject. Uh you know it's always been a matter of some curiosity as to exactly which political agency was pushing it.
1: Um, yeah, so I, part of what I was really interested uh, for context, particularly after reading um, reading the questions article, was more elaboration on what climate science, insofar as it existed, used to be like. you made you made some references to how it was. Uh, you know, a, a fairly minor, minor subject, but also the issue that it was less simulation oriented. And my guess is that it was, in general, much less political and that there was no pretense of everyone agrees on what political action to take.
0: Well, yeah, it depends on how far to go. But I would say that until... Uh, 1992, virtually everyone in my department and most departments considered themselves uh, atmospheric scientists, ocean scientists, and so on, oceanographers, meteorologists. Um, Climate was considered as a feature of these fields, the long-term behavior, It wasn't considered as a distinct specialty except in one place, and that was, you know, things like state climatologists. And that referred to record keepers. Um, But in general, few other people referred to themselves as climatologists. It was simply part of a larger subject. Um, But in 92, with Rio and uh, with George uh, H.W. Bush increasing the funding immensely, all of a sudden everyone became, quote, a climate scientist, and the funding was increased so very much that it couldn't be absorbed by the existing climate scientists. So you got thousands of people who got into the area of, quote, impact. And this has been a peculiar burden on the field because these people had no background in the science underlying climate, but whatever they were studying, whether it was cockroaches or obesity or whatever, uh, if they could say they could relate it to climate, uh, they got funded. And, of course, they became major defenders. This is a major problem because uh, if it weren't, why would you be worried about the impact?
1: I'm curious what you think about the parallels between, because I see a couple here, between this and the mania that ensued after um, Darwin published his basic discoveries in which everyone tried to link themselves with the theory of evolution, mostly in bizarre and often in extremely um, uh, destructive ways, even though the the core of... Oh,
0: social Darwinism was, of course, the most obvious example of that, but uh, that's a little bit different. Uh, First of all, not everyone did. Uh, Yes, it it was seen as supporting certain political or social views. Uh, Darwin's interaction with that was minimal. I, I always sort of appreciated the fact that Darwin expressed gratitude for being a gentleman scientist and not having to depend on employment by a university. (laughs) Um, I I think if you look back at evolution and the arguments surrounding it, it it was much closer to normative science in the 19th century. Where uh, things, I think, fell apart with evolution is when it, too, became dogma. And uh something you have to accept in a very specific form and so on. And that I think is generally unhealthy.
1: So with 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 both of those then, I mean I, part of my feeling about evolution is you're you're in a context where in my understanding it's less politicized. So it impressed me that particularly my knowledge is mostly in philosophy of how much of a mania it became within philosophy of we're gonna we're gonna be scientific now and we're gonna base everything on Darwin. And oh
0: that. yes, there's no question that Darwinism became a kind of uh, qualification for being uh, pro-science, and that is interesting. And I think it has more to do with the. Secularism of society, the the become very much. I think one of the motivations of dogma for evolution, or at least Darwinian evolution of a specific sort, uh, has been uh, you know the atheist community.
1: But then, of course, I mean you have you have religious institutions. I mean, what's remarkable is that if you look at the, the climate community today, it it resembles the Catholic Church in non-trivial
0: ways. Well, I think this is being unfair to the Catholic Church. (laughs) The Catholic Church has evolved. I mean, it's, you know, moderated its views. It's often taken views that are unpopular. But, you know, I think uh, in a way that's a cheap shot.
1: Was it, it wasn't intended to be, but... Th- this and week, I'm
0: thinking of the war, where, you know, in France, at least, the Catholic Church uh, yeah. behaved, you know, once, despite the fact that it had supported Vichy yeah. by 42, it was uh, behaving quite courageously. Yeah,
1: I meant more in terms of the the practice of announcing collective or, or official conclusions, uh, particularly... Oh, yeah,
0: but it does so under a very specific auspices. If you're saying that science is somehow trying to create its own uh, unimpeachable authority the, uh, that the Pope w- was said to have, yeah, sure, there's a similarity there.
1: So that gets into the issue that you've raised about science as a mode of inquiry versus, I forget what, what the Absolutely. distinction. As, a,
0: as, a, as opposed to being a source of authority.
1: As a source of authority. Exactly. How If you look at, I don't know the history of climate science too well in terms of when things were discovered, but how before, say, the 60s, how much authoritarianism, authoritarianism was there compared to now?
0: Oh, vastly less.
1: So can you give a picture of just what it, of... of I mean,
0: you know, how should I put it? Uh, this is the point of that article. in In the 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s, the object of science was to have questions and uh, offer possible answers and testing them and, you know and people were competing who could explain this and people had different explanations and uh, you know, how do you resolve these differences uh, that's, it was a time I think also to a much greater extent than today uh... academics you know at lunch uh... talk shop discuss these things uh... there were very few things that were political that was not so true in biology in the twenties where eugenics uh, influenced biology quite a lot um, but you know I would still say there exists a kind of normative science, but uh, once something becomes an issue for NGOs and government and so on, uh, it becomes a part of what we now call political correctness. That's by no means a new phenomenon.
1: So, so with the new, in the new setup where you have this institution, it really does, from economics, remind me of a government-chartered monopoly. I could see with the new institution, as it stands, you basically have people setting the goal from on high, which is something like, ultimately, they want control of humanity in some form, and they think humanity is going to destroy itself without them, and that sets the whole direction of everything what, what set the direction of climate science in the past before this whole government hierarchy?
0: Oh, I mean, you know, there were problems that had come up. I mean, probably the most interesting problem was the ice age cycles. And you had theories there, and they were argued and tested. There was a climate program in the 70s. Uh, you know, as uh, the record the paleo record became clearer. The Eocene was certainly a fascinating period, and people were trying to understand that. But, I mean, it was very much a matter of uh, here are things we've seen. How did they happen? How do they work?
1: And then, and then within that... What... There was
0: also a question in today's climate. You know, why does it have the structure it does? What determines the temperature difference between the equator and pole? Why do we have the intensity of storms at present? So, there were serious questions that should be considered an important part of climate. Though, oddly enough, most of those never make it into the IPCC.
1: So, how were these? So, if you're an individual scientist in this field in, say, the 50s or the 40s, what's What determines your I guess your your basic employability and what direction you take?
0: Um, in general, I mean, at MIT, for appointments, uh, they were looking at what they called home runs. Did somebody actually discover something? Did somebody actually provide a uh, widely admired? Solution to something. Um, that's what they were looking for increasingly. And I think, to be fair, the better universities or the best of them still consider that. But uh, funding is uh, also a very important aspect. And for that, I'm not sure you have to necessarily conform to something handed on from hi- on high. But you have to be part of the group. Um, you know once a group exists in a field, it becomes the referees of what else is done in the field. So you know it it's phenomenally slows down innovation. Can you and, elaborate uh, on how
1: that's worked out in practice? what What kind of innovation has been slowed?
0: Oh yeah, I mean, you're no longer asking questions of how does this work. Uh, I mean, one could give lots of examples of it, but I mean, you know, they'd even be technical. But, you know, with climate, uh, there are many causes of climate change, but uh, the focus and the funding is to associate it with uh, greenhouse gases. This is very simplistic, and if you do that, uh, for instance, you could never explain the Ice Age cycles. On the other hand, in the 30s, a Serbian astronomer, Milankovic, uh, gave a perfectly good theory that now seems to be absolutely correct. And it depended on how the orbital variations of the Earth caused Arctic summers to change. And that's the main factor in the growth of ice sheets uh, if you took the view of co2 there would be no seasonal effect. It would have no way of creating this, and indeed it doesn't
1: interesting um, if we look on a if we look at the field in as as this system distributed in universities, how much competition was there among let's say, different cliques, different individuals within the field, sort of how much the opposite of consensus was it? When? when oh, oh referring? Before, let's say before the fall, I mean before 60s oh, and yeah,
0: 70s. No, I mean, I think, uh, as I point out, in, in the years, 20 years or so, even 30 years after World War Two. Now, the funding agencies were very small bureaucracies. Uh, there was no imposition, and anyone who had any track record of discovery tended to be supported. I mean, but It's only when you started developing gigantic programs and expanding the bureaucracies at NASA, the NSF, and so on, that uh, it became important for proposals to fit into niches.
1: I mean, presumably, there was some point at which, if if you're, well, actually, let me ask this: How much? When did when did the majority of the funding start coming from government? Well, that was.
0: How should I put it, Uh, can you tell me, well, it depends on the field, of course, but in fields like uh, mathematics, physics, chemistry, uh, most of chemistry, meteorology, what, what is there besides government?
1: Well, I would imagine the, I mean, the institutions, a lot of people are professors, the the fees of students partially funding the research? I mean, not today. Ever, ever,
0: never. never.
1: That never happened? No.
0: I mean, you know, you had a few private foundations that supported science in the between-war period. Uh, After World War II, uh, almost completely it was government you had research labs in the private industries. I mean, Ford Motors, IBM, Bell Labs had wonderful laboratories, uh, and you could work there, but uh, they did not support research in the universities.
1: What about, what about before World War II?
0: Well, World War II, science was a very small enterprise. Uh, You know, it it underwent massive expansion after World War II. But before World War II, I mean, a physics meeting of the outstanding physicists might be a hundred people. Charitable foundations in England and the U.S. did set up laboratories. Um, There wasn't too much government support. There was some. Uh, in communication and meteorology and so on. Uh, Yeah, it was much more mixed and it was much, much smaller. That doesn't mean it wasn't highly productive. I mean, it can be a case that there's too much funding.
1: I mean, it seems, at least the fields I know of, it seems physics, enormously productive and incredible innovations made between 1900 and 1940.
0: Uh, between 1830 and 1940.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Even, even better. Oh, sure. And, you know, it was at a small scale, but very profound. A lot of it was theory. Theory doesn't take much money, and this was before theory became, you know, massive computer simulation. So the capital investment was minimal. Uh, people like Kelvin, Lord Kelvin, uh, phenomenally important scientist. But he actually commercialized a lot of this stuff, you know, and was heavily involved in the transatlantic cable. So, you know, he could support it. You had gentlemen scientists like Lord Rayleigh or Darwin, for that matter. Darwin never had support, quote. He paid for his own stuff. So
1: today we have this, this practice of... Uh these different foundations or trade organizations, you might call them, issuing these public statements, was there of consensus, was there anything resembling that pre-World War II? Um,
0: sure. Um, you had two notable examples, and I'm sure there were more. One was eugenics and race science, so to speak. Um, where uh, there were political, even in this country, I mean, in the run-up to the Immigration Restriction Act of 1923, uh, there was a constant insistence that science demanded it, and uh, Congress did make claims that uh, this was science. Same thing after World War II, when uh, I think Robert J. Lifson, interviewed uh, the medical commandants at the concentration camps, he discovered they didn't feel guilty. They did what science demanded. Uh, You had uh, enforced conformity to uh, a kind of Lamarckian anti- uh, genetic approach to evolution in the Soviet Union with Lysenko.
1: So yeah, I mean imagine in the Soviet Union they they would announce it as science. Is there any is there any historical example where someone is is going out of their way to claim that the mantle of science is saying something and that it's actually a good?
0: I mean, me, I, I'm not following you. Oh,
1: oh, sorry. Has there ever been this kind of public scientific declaration that was constructive? Um.
0: You know, I think with eugenics it was. I mean, you know, remember eugenics was the environmentalism of the first third of the twentieth century, and uh, it was you know all the fashionable people from Margaret Sanger to George Bernard Shaw endorsed it as uh, you know their badge of uh, being with it, with science.
1: So I mean, I, but so in what sense is that constructive?
0: Well, you know, it was constructed in the sense that, for instance, for the U.S., uh, we uh, there was a popular concern over immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. And so they needed, but there was no precedent for immigration restriction. And so they needed something that said that they weren't against these people, but... Uh, America was having an epidemic of feeble-mindedness. And uh, it seemed to be due to immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. And so they found people, scientists at Cold Springs Harbor, for instance, still a distinguished lab, who uh, said, yes, uh, objectively, that is the case. And once it became politically important. I think there was disagreement in the scientific community, but they shut up. And they shut up because it gave prominence to biology. It, uh, you know, demonstrated that biology was important to human affairs. And they were so eager for that recognition that they went along.
1: Isn't there also a a fairly high price to pay, to the extent you have an establishment and you you publicly speak out against it, you're making a calculation that you're willing to lose your job.
0: Well, no, I, I think in some cases that's the case. But in general, the only people I know who've lost jobs over this are state climatologists where this is a political job. And um, so the governor can get rid of them. In academia, tenure protects some of us. I would say for younger faculty, they understand they can't take a position on this if they want to be promoted.
1: So isn't that that they'll lose their job?
0: Well, they won't get promoted. They won't be able to publish. They won't be able to get grants. If they don't do either of those, they won't get promoted. On the other hand, if they play ball, they'll get grants, they'll get published, and uh, they'll get prizes. So, you know, that'll give them a promotion.
1: If we look at this whole system of, of climate science today, how much of a difference does a given administration make in shaping the developments uh, for the next four years in terms of the the scientific field?
0: Well, I think it, it will be very important this time around. I don't know. I mean, if you read... Did you read through the whole thing on climate science? Twice. Okay. Well, you'll remember there's this figure, John Holdren. Yes. He's a fanatic on the subject, and he is the science czar. Uh, he, I'm, I'm sure, has played a major role in getting all these uh, scientific societies that have no relevance to climate whatever to sign on and say they agree. I don't think you would have that under a different administration.
1: What about if you take the Clinton-Gore administration, just the fact that there's someone at the top who has this belief and has this governmental goal. Yeah,
0: that was certainly important. But, you know, you have to remember the the should hit the fan under George H.W. Bush uh, when he responded to this by going to Rio, signing on to uh, Rio, and, uh, you know, Increasing the funding by a factor of 10 or more. Uh, he certainly created an immense vested interest that no longer needed someone like Gore to push it.
1: Now, what do you think incentivized him? Gore
0: also was, you know, under Clinton, rather cautious on this in that he realized that. Uh, Publicly, his book uh, "Earth in the Balance" was, you know, would, if people looked at it closely, would have regarded it as a nut job.
1: So why did Bush do what he did?
0: I think if you remember he ran saying, "I want to be regarded as the environment president." I mean, it's like Nixon creating EPA. Uh, it looked good to them. I, you know, I remember speaking to a group of Republican congressmen well, maybe 10 years ago. No, less than that. Um, and, uh, you know, this was a group uh, sympathetic to skepticism. But one of them came to me and said, you know what we've just done? I said, what? He said, we've passed a law of banning incandescent light bulbs. Wasn't that a great idea? And my jaw dropped. You know, this is the stupidest thing I've heard today. Uh, And he was surprised. And these people, you know, themselves don't know what's going on, and uh, they don't want to appear as though uh, they're rejecting science.
1: So then it seems as if if, if Bush makes this high-level decision that he's going to, quote, support science and be the environment president, then some group of ambitious bureaucrats come in to, to implement that. What, what kind of people fill that role, and what's their influence?
0: <laughs> uh, could you be more specific?
1: Well, just, just, I mean, there's a hierarchy. I mean, he's, he's saying... He well,
0: did, I mean, you know, how should I put it?
1: Uh, under
0: Clinton, under Bush, under W... Uh, There was still uh, much more freedom. So, for instance, the administrator of NASA, Griffin, could express his doubts about this. Um, But I think once Obama came in, uh, there was a clean sweep. All the people in charge of NSF, of EPA, of NOAA were uh, radicals on this issue.
1: I want to go back to the, the point you brought up at the beginning and that you made an, uh, um, something you sent me, I think it was a, a lecture, um, but about this issue of, of these false dichotomies and the, the, this, these ridiculous oversimplifications of what people agree to. So what, what, what are the core things to start out with, like the core simple things that, that have pretty much been established in the field?
0: Oh, I would say there is general agreement, for instance, that uh, global mean temperature has gone up a few tenths of a degree since the Little Ice Age. This was never considered very remarkable. Uh, the Earth had gone through such cycles and uh, there was agreement. Um, there wasn't agreement on the cause or even the significance of it because that's a small residue of all the local changes which are always much larger in every which direction. Um, There was no real argument that uh, if you add greenhouse gases to the system it should get warmer rather than cooler. The real question was how much? And that remains, you know, a hotly contested issue. If it's in the range of a few tenths of a degree, which is all the present data suggests it is, uh, it's no big deal. Um, you know, it's, on the other hand, if you pose the question, uh, has it gotten warmer and uh, does a man play some role, you'll get widespread agreement, even from people like myself. And, you know, as I say, that isn't the question. On the other hand, uh, you know, it reminds me very much of kind of, uh, how shall I put it, in the 17th century, uh, Holland was an extremely prosperous country. But uh, whenever a whale beached on the coast, Which was not a terribly unusual occurrence, Uh, national days of fasting and mourning were declared because it was considered uh, a message from God that they were not behaving properly. So, you know, here you have something perfectly natural so far, and you're saying, well, we have to do something. And then the proposed things, if you do the arithmetic, would have no impact on this, no matter what you believe. So it's almost symbolic, but you know, like uh, the Aztecs uh, sacrificing human beings, it has great implications for those human beings.
1: So this, this kind of, of, I guess, there's this, there's this negative disposition in environmentalism toward man changing any part of nature as such. And then the idea that he could be impacting the climate is in any degree, I think, is considered morally wrong. I
0: think, I think you, you've you got an important point there. Uh, there are people who look at it as just a, a pragmatic issue. Is it big enough to worry about? And there are others who uh... unscientifically have the view oh my god i didn't know man could have any impact uh... this is terrible and that's a meaningless question from the point of view of policy at least objectively uh... we have all sorts of you know these are the same people who are willing to believe that use the famous analogy, the fluttering of a butterfly's wings can uh, impact the weather forecast. And certainly it's not so odd that if the fluttering of a butterfly's wings can do it, that uh, this kind of change in sensitivity at some small level is part of nature.
1: But what is the truth about the butterfly's wings? (laughs)
0: The truth is the system of equations is sufficiently poorly posed that indeed very small changes in unobservable quantities in the initial conditions can uh, wreck a forecast after a, a week or two.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. So with with this idea of this, this view that it's intrinsically wrong to modify nature, I find that it's often accompanied by this alleged scientific view that nature exists in a delicate balance. And so anything we do to change things, we have to be worried uh, about. Yeah,
0: yeah, no such planet could exist for four and a half billion years. <laughs> I mean, the Earth has gone through changes. I mean, you know, one of the things I like to work on is uh, the early faint sun. Um, you know, you go back a couple of billion years, and we we are, we know basically that the solar brightness had to be about twenty thirty percent less than it is today. Now, by comparison, uh, that doubling carbon dioxide probably modifies. The radiative balance by about four watts per meter squared, three and a half out of 200. Uh, this was, uh, you know, 70, 60, 70 out of 200. And yet uh, the evidence is the climate was not terribly different from today's. It is a pretty robust system. On the other hand, there is evidence it did have some remarkable episodes that were different, at least in terms of our relative values. I mean, you know, the Ice Age uh, at some level was not a profound perturbation, but, you know, if you happen to be in a region that had two kilometers of ice on top of you, it was a big perturbation.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'd rather have an Ice Age than... Uh, global warming controls. Well,
0: I don't know what you mean by that. I, I, think I mean right restrictions
1: and restrictions in energy, pr- mass restrictions in energy production. I'd rather. Oh, but that
0: you know, uh, the global cooling issue of the seventies led to the same wish to control fossil fuels. Right. So you know that, that's a perfectly good example that the policy preceded the science. And whichever direction the science went, it led to the same policy.
1: Right. Um, and, and part of what I meant there is just the, the issue of uh, part of the people who don't, who believe it's wrong to alter nature, they ignore how amazingly adaptable we are at adjusting at adjusting. Oh, to yeah.
0: I mean, ever since we invented the umbrella, we, you
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> But, but if we can joke oh, about course. that, but that's a really True. big
0: deal. I mean, look, uh, people don't like cold, by and large. And so, you know, you find at least a few more people retire to the Sun Belt than to Alaska. I mean, that's a form of adaptation where you choose the climate you prefer. And farmers, you know, how shall I put it? When I was a kid, uh, North Florida, the uh, Tallahassee region, uh, was citrus area. Um, for many years, it's been too cold for citrus agriculture, but the area hasn't disappeared. It does other things, grows other things, and so on. Farmers are forever developing uh, different breeds, varieties of wheat for different climate conditions.
1: And plus, we have just an amazing system of trade whereby a crop failure doesn't mean that you starve anymore.
0: Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, it, again, I mean, 40 years ago, it would have been inconceivable that India would be a food exporter, but it is.
1: So I want to go back to this idea of, of balance. It, it seems, philosophically, that seems like a really weird concept to apply to nature because what would it mean for nature to be unbalanced? Well, think
0: about it for a moment in terms of your own body. Um, is your body temperature the result of a delicate balance?
1: It seems balanced. I don't know how delicate it is.
0: Why isn't it delicate?
1: I mean, there's constant inputs and outputs all the time, and it's amazingly They're constant. Feedback.
0: They're feedbacks. Essentially, it's a regular self-regulating system. A self-regulating system is one where it responds to a change by resisting the change. And that's the norm for any stable long-lasting system that it has the means of regulating itself that's what's referred to as negative feedbacks Uh, in the models used for projecting alarm uh, the system is riddled with positive feedbacks where whatever man does is amplified so for example I mean if you just double CO2, and had no feedbacks, no stabilizing element, you'd get about a degree warming which, frankly, no one really worries about. Uh, The only reason the models predict more is uh, for reasons that seem entirely spurious. Uh, They take whatever we do and amplify it by a factor of four or five. So
1: I find the analogy of a human being helpful Except that it, I mean, a human being is a living entity with their survival goal that has evolved in a certain way. It doesn't seem like the, that's true of the climate.
0: Oh, tell me about it.
1: Tell you about what?
0: I mean, what leads you to that statement?
1: Well, I mean, so the the, the I mean, it's it's not a. I remember
0: I, the temperature at the equator. Has been pretty much the same as it is now, within a couple of degrees, for billions of years. How much more stable do you want? It?
1: No, no, it's it's amazingly stable. I just I, but in this, there are many physical properties of things that are stable too, but they don't have a goal per se, like a living like a living being. If it's not evolved to self-regulate in that way,
0: no, I mean you know presumably if they didn't exist, the planet wouldn't have survived. So it's a matter of
1: selection. But but I guess that gets the issue of what is the, I mean, the planet is a, you know, it's a rock with a lot of different living organisms on it with all these interrelationships. No, 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 but I'm
0: saying, you know, you go back two and a half billion years, there are no living organisms, but you did have water.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And water itself is an immensely uh, important thing in regulating the system.
1: I guess I don't know what it would mean. Let me ask it this way. What would it mean for nature to be out of balance?
0: I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, you're asking a good question. I don't know the answer. I mean, it's a system. Uh, It's always out of equilibrium. Equilibrium never an equilibrium. There's always heat stored in the oceans, released from the oceans. Um it's a system that always has to adjust to this.
1: Well then if if to to go back to the idea of feedbacks as a resistance, what are the main drivers in the system that tend to put up resistance? You know, I, you some... know,
0: water the hydrological cycle is the most obvious. I mean if you think about it, it only requires a few percent change in cloud cover or cloud height or any of these properties to completely counter the effect of doubling CO2. Mm-hmm.
1: Are there others of that magnitude?
0: No, clouds are certainly, in water cycle is certainly the biggest thing in the system, but it, it's what defines the Earth. That we're a wet planet. I mean, I don't know how much you, you've taken high school physics or something like that, but you remember, I mean, water has remarkable, remarkable properties. And it has a heat of vaporization. It has a relationship between density and temperature that is not entirely normal, so that, you know, at four degrees, it's the most dense, The you know, and uh, then the density changes.
1: Yes. So just, again, going to the issue of balance one more time. It seems Ice floats
0: on water. Normally, when things condense, they're heavier or denser. So are
1: those are those attributes of water key to its connection to life, or is, are those additional?
0: Okay. Oh, to everything in this planet. I mean, between water and CO2 and oxygen, you have the story of life.
1: Well, one of those is evil, I've heard. Pardon I me? Mean? I've heard that CO2 is evil.
0: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, how shall I put it? Uh, are, you, are you... Are we carrying on a serious conversation or... Uh, are you telling me what you? Uh,
1: no, I was, I was. I was just. I was. I was referring to what I hear every day in the news. No, I mean, yeah, it's. It's just. You no, know,
0: very well. I mean, at that level, uh, you know, every so often somebody goes to an environmental conclave. There are thousands of people, I and mean, he has a petition uh, that he wants to have uh, dihydrogen oxide regulated. <laughs> yeah. It's thousands of signatures, you know, you know, this is silliness, right? Without CO2, we'd all be dead.
1: I'm curious what you think of this. It seems like the idea that if people say nature is in a balance, it, it reminds me of the argument from design, which assumes that there's such a thing as an unorderly universe.
0: Yeah, as I say, I don't even know what the term means.
1: It's I a mean, you know, it's
0: hard to imagine a natural system that exists in a delicate balance. The natural system has to be a system that survived. To it what extent? It means it has to establish its own balance
1: when perturbed. So if the climate isn't is... is it makes sense to me to think of the climate as the system. Do you think of, do you think that talk of an ecosystem as this total collective system that can be, that's a delicate balance as well? What do you what do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's more a philosophical than the scientific view. You know, one of the things about real ecosystems is they have. Innumerable paths to adjust, and if you make a simple, constrained model, it can do bad things because you've left out the paths over which they adjust. This is equally true of economics. I mean, why are economic forecasts always bad? Or virtually random That's because you know, no matter how good their model is, they've left something out, and that's enough of the system to use that out to behave differently.
1: All right, I have uh, one last question. How useful is the average global temperature? It seems like it would be of quite limited (laughs) use.
0: I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, climate change, Historically, over millions and billions of years, there's been largely a change in the distribution of temperature over the Earth, mainly the equator to pole temperature difference. I mean, during the Ice Ages, the tropics were similar to today, but, you know, the poles were much colder. During the Eocene, the tropics were similar to today's, but uh, the poles were much warmer, And uh, because the equator is uh, remaining relatively constant and the poles are changing, the mean temperature changes. That's a residue of the real climate change. It's not a forcing of the real climate change. Uh, You know, to focus on that is to ignore the fact that uh, I think most climate change in the Earth's history has not been due to things like CO2 or solar or things like that, which are global. and had to do with changes in the seasonal cycle, changes in regional patterns and so on. And uh, the global mean temperature was just a residue. If you look at the data from which you get global mean temperature, You know, you look at the deviations from the mean at individual stations. They're all over the place. They range, you know, between plus and minus two degrees. And then you average them, and it looks like nothing is left. it all averaged out. And then you blow up the scale, and you call that global mean temperature, and you look at it. It's sort of like a Ouija board in some ways.
1: So is it right, then, that From the perspective of human adaptation.
0: Let me ask you something. Yeah. When you hear, you know, global warming and global mean temperature anomaly has increased, uh, what sort of numbers come to your mind? Uh,
1: One degree?
0: No, we're still talking about tenths of a degree, not one.
1: Even Fahrenheit?
0: No, I'm thinking centigrade. And tell me something. When you where do you live?
1: Southern California.
0: Okay. Even in Southern California, what's the day night temperature difference? Hmm 30,
1: 40 degrees, maybe?
0: Sometimes. Mm. Yeah. Would you perceive a degree? No. Yeah. We're talking about something really tiny.
1: Yeah, and that, that's that's fascinating because it makes me think that the real... We actually have to do more adaptation than the global number suggests because the local numbers are different. So if there's... The yeah, and they
0: number, go each way. Right. They go each way. Otherwise, the global number would be much bigger.
1: But if Symbolized- you take... Sorry, go ahead. If, you
0: know, if global mean goes up two-tenths, but that means locally it went up five, the global mean would have been five. If the global mean is much smaller than your local chains, it must have been on local chains someplace else that canceled it. There's
1: just, There's this premise among the alarmists that even one degree or two degrees is so scary, and yet people are continuously adapting to much greater changes of in each direction.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, you have air conditioners, you have heating <laughs> systems. You know, it's, right? It's just crazy. You tell that to a farmer and, you know, he just scratches his head. You know, he knows that the field station will be developing new breeds.
1: Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, any final things you well, want I mean, to share? I
0: mean, by the way, you're touching on something interesting. Which is environmentalism, uh, whatever its nastiness and ugliness, is largely an urban phenomenon. And I think it, it, it really, really depends on people having no sense of what nature is at all. It depends on attracting people for whom nature is itself almost a meaningless concept and they'll believe anything.
1: Yeah, that, that certainly was reflected in my uh, elementary, high school, and college education. We certainly got no no clear idea of what, what the world is actually like and what it's actually like if you don't modify it.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, it also, I mean, education, I don't know. But, uh, you know, you find this in the concern for population. I mean, I'm always fascinated by the fact that India's population since its independence has gone up by over a factor of five or six. And uh, however one feels about it, uh, in 48, when it 47 when it got independence, Famines were a normal part of life in India. We read about them regularly. Now, with six times the population, India is a food exporter. That is not exactly what you would have been led to believe.
1: And yeah, not by Ehrlich and Holder in particular.
0: No, not at all. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think... How oh, sorry I put it? Uh, you know, in America, it's much clearer than elsewhere that these things have become right-left issues, and uh, you almost have the feeling with people like Holdren and Ehrlich and people on the left of their ilk that their greatest enemy is prosperity. That uh, without If you could get rid of prosperity, you'd have a dependent population. That would be docile.
1: And have a minimal environmental impact.
0: I don't think they care about it any more than the Soviet Union cared about it, to be honest. It's just a vehicle. There's nothing in the environmental movement that, if you look at it carefully, is actually concerned with the environment. They just use it as a kind of device.
1: What about environment, what about the non-human environment?
0: Well, like what? I mean...
1: Well, like the kangaroo rat that they save at the expense of a home.
0: What about the kangaroo rat?
1: Oh, I'm just saying that, that it seems their core belief seems to be that they're willing to sacrifice human well-being to wilderness, to untouched nature.
0: Yeah, but I think that's just a device for control.
1: Is control yeah, I, I don't primary.
0: think a real concern. It's just if you can pass a radical enough law about endangered species, that's another mode of control.
1: But the, there I mean,
0: isn't the least, there's not the least evidence that a snail daughter is essential for life on Earth. If the snail daughter disappeared, as species do, from time to time, hardly anyone would notice.
1: That that, that goes back to the ritualistic thing you mentioned earlier, where you're, you're performing a ritual because you think something is generally right, or there's some deity that you're serving. But it seems like they still believe it in this religious way, or some of them do.
0: Well, I think some people do. Some people get attracted by this ritual. But I think it's also obvious that this is a ritual that can be uh, maliciously exploited.
1: Yeah, I, I don't mean to think that, I don't mean ritual in good. I think it's a bad ritual, I mean, like...
0: Oh, look, there are rituals that are harmless. Um, this one isn't.
1: Definitely. So is there anything else you think our listeners no, need no. to know?
0: It's one o'clock, so whether you need to know or i need to know anything that's an open question
1: <laughs> all right dr Lindzen, well thank you so much for taking the time i know you're really busy okay good night. Right. have a Bye-bye. good day bye i'm very grateful to richard Lindzen for coming on the show he is a a superstar in the field there are many many demands on his time but without exception every time I've emailed him, he's very generously uh, given me help, and he, the two times I've asked, asked him to come on the show, he has been more than willing. Uh, I learned a huge amount just from going back and forth with him. It's, it's very fun and very challenging. He'll sometimes put me on the spot, which is, which is quite an experience. And yeah, I, I hope everyone uh, followed it. It's definitely, I think, worth, worth at least two listens And you just think about how much common sense that guy has and how much of an ability he has to look at the big picture, which I find very lacking in most discussions of climate. There's this monomaniacal obsession with how much are fossil fuels messing up the world? And there's little to no interest in how much do we benefit from fossil fuels How much could others benefit from more fossil fuels, and how much of a catastrophe would it be to actually make the vast majority of fossil fuels illegal, which is what different people advocate, including, this is a good segue, my debating opponent, Bill McKibben, whom I will be debating on November 5th at Duke University. To learn more about that, go to www.fossilfueldebate.com. Uh, I think it's a really, really important debate, really, really big opportunity. Bill has been called the nation's leading environmentalist. He's leading a charge against the fossil fuel movement. And we at Center for Industrial Progress are the champions of the fossil fuel industry. So that's, that's the clash you need to see. And if you support our cause, then support our cause www.fossilfueldebate.com we will accept your generous donations gratefully and put them to good use so with that, thanks again to Dr. Richard Lindzen for coming on the show that's it for this week as always, if you need to reach me send me questions, comments, love mail, hate mail just hit me up at at alex.industrialprogress.net next week we'll be back Another great episode, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour.
0: Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.